Thanks, guys. Good morning again. I guess there comes that time in everyone's life when your children become your friends. <laughs> and I'm so, I'm heartwarmed by that that has happened today. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. Um, for a number of years, I've been a, a very, very amateur beekeeper. I'm not very good at it. Uh, and one of the reasons that I love to keep bees is because I really like honey. It's delicious, one of my favorite things. And so when you have bees, you have honey, and it's wonderful. But as I've kept bees for a few years and throughout just the experience and then observing them, actually one of my favorite things to do is put a lawn chair right in front of the beehive and just watch, watch them work and fly and, and do what they're doing. As I've watched them, I've actually found that the life and behavior of bees is much more fascinating and actually rewarding sometimes than even the sweetness of, of getting to enjoy the honey. And in the world of bees, the colony, which is comprised of literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of individual bees, exists as a, as a singular organism. So you have 10,000 bees, but they, they exist and work together as a singular organism. Organism, and it's an organism that values the life of one individual bee over every other. The queen. There's one queen, and she's the most important individual of that whole organism. And everything in the colony serves her, serves her existence, her resilience, her health, and her flourishing, because without her, the colony would cease to exist pretty quickly. Actually, this year, this is off the cuff now, this year I actually lost a queen. I think my queen died, and I thought my whole colony was going to die, but they went ahead and raised a new queen without me. I didn't even help them with that. <laughs> they did it, and they raised a new queen, and they came back, and I've, they've been flying even this month, so they're still alive. I'm so excited. Um, so there are many ways, though, in that, with that in mind, there are many ways in which the life of the church actually parallels the life of a beehive. And as a queen to the colony, one thing creates the church. There's one thing that stands at the center of the church. There's one thing that makes the church the church. There's one thing that just as the queen requires and demands the life and energy and attention of every other bee in that colony. There's one thing that demands our protection and attention and is worthy of our lives. The question is, what is it? I knew you were going to say Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. And you may have thought Jesus, and in a sense, that is the right answer. However, I would put, I put forward to you this, that the answer is actually the gospel. And first of all, I say that because the gospel is the message about Jesus. The gospel has everything to do with Jesus. And so when we talk about the gospel, when we speak of the gospel, we talk about, we speak about Jesus, okay? There's this thing that's at the center of the church that we would live and die for, that we have to protect. And in the second sense, Jesus isn't at risk. Jesus doesn't need protection from you or from me. Jesus is not under threat. He is the king of the universe and will continue to be and will be forever. But the gospel, on the other hand, 
is this thing, this message that has been entrusted to the people of God to proclaim and to protect and to live by. It's what makes the church the church, and it stands at the center of the church. So this, these few months here at the beginning of this year, we're looking at FBC's mission statement, and we find that the gospel, even though this is the statement up there, it's also in your bulletin, is, is literally the last word of that mission statement. But it stands at the center of this mission statement. It stands at the center of our identity, of everything that we are and do. Everything else in this statement revolves around the gospel, depends upon the gospel, is created by the gospel, is fueled by the gospel, is shaped by the gospel. So we exist to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. So last month in January, we looked at what it meant to be a people. What does it mean to be a word-centered, radically dependent, generously loving, disciple-making people? And this month, we are going to look more in depth at what is the life-giving fullness of the gospel. Reminded that God and the gospel is at the center of our identity, and the gospel is what makes us a people. Now, the natural question, of course, is, well, what is the gospel? And, and the answer to this question, honestly, is so simple that a little child can understand it. A little child can understand it and believe it and put their faith in it. And yet, the answer to this question is also so profound that I think we'll spend an eternity thinking about it and considering it and praising God for it. It's something into which the angels even long to look will plummet its depths and rejoice in its fullness forever. But we only have about 30 minutes today. And so for that 30 minutes, we're going to go and find some help from the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 1 and his introduction to his letter to the Romans, mainly just looking at the first six verses. And Paul begins in verse 1 by pointing out that his entire life is centered around the gospel. He introduces himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle, uh, which is a term which simply means messenger or herald, someone that carries good news from one place to another. That's what an apostle is. Biblically, though, apostles, and when I say apostles, capital A apostles, were these group of, of men who were authorized messengers. They were representatives of Jesus, that Jesus gave the authority to preach and proclaim and take the official message of the gospel, proclaim it, tell others about it, spread the message. But they also had authority to define and communicate and protect the integrity of the gospel for the entire church, because Pretty soon after the church started, there would be people who would rise up and try to reinvent this message and add things to it and take away from it. So the apostles were given the task of pro pro protecting and defining the gospel. And for Jesus' appointed representatives to be called apostles, for them to be called messengers, highlights really the first definition of what the gospel is. It is a message, a proclamation. 
The gospel is news. In fact, that, that's what the word gospel means. It literally means good news. The gospel is good news. But it's not just any old good news. Paul is speaking of the gospel of God, he says. The gospel of God. It is God's good news. And what that means, that it's the gospel of God, is that the the gospel belongs to God. He owns it. It's his. But it is also the gospel that is about God. So the fact that the good news belongs to God means that it's not man-made. It didn't come out of anybody's head. In fact, I would argue that the gospel is so strange and unusual that no one could have thought it up besides God. And like the rest of creation, like the entire universe, in fact, it falls under God's purview. The gospel is under his authority, and it is his eternal plan. He's the one who not only created it, but is bringing it to fruition. As Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, It is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is God's big picture plan, his gospel. So we can think of the gospel as a story. And if the gospel is a story, a message in story form, then God is the storyteller. He's the author, the divine author. The gospel does not belong to us. So since it's not our story, we're part of the story, but we're not the author, we don't have the authority to change it around. We don't have the authority to edit or, or or to twist it to fit our ends or our purposes or our needs. God doesn't offer us like a choose-your-own-adventure book. He doesn't offer us a choose-your-own-gospel plan. He's offering us His gospel because it is His. It's not ours. And, and because it's His, here's, the, here's part of the good news, because it's His, it's the best possible good news we could get. So the gospel belongs to God, but the gospel is also about God. God is the author, and he's the main character in the gospel story. He's not one of those unnamed extras that kind of floats by in the background of the movie. He's not a stunt double. From creation to fall to redemption to restoration, God is actively working as the main character in this story. The gospel is God's, it belongs to God, and it's about God. The gospel is God's good news. But Paul continues in verse 2 to explain the character of this good news. He says, The gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, as we're reading through, and when he's talking about the Holy Scriptures, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the ones that they had at the time. They didn't have the, the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. So when we read through the Bible, oftentimes we we go to the New Testament and we read these four books right at the beginning of the New Testament called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? What do we call those four books? The Gospels, right? We call these four Gospels. But the Gospel doesn't start with the four Gospels. The Gospel actually starts at the beginning of the book, at the front end of the Bible, when God created the world and when he made humanity and shaped them into his own image, And he called them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And he blessed them. 
This is the movement, by the way, of God's story that we call creation. We can look at God's story in four different movements. The first is creation. God's story continued when God's creation, Adam and Eve, rebelled against him. And they created a separation from God. And they brought sin and death and curse into the world. We call this movement of God's story the fall. But the story, thankfully, doesn't stop there. And the majority of the rest of the Bible tells the story of God pursuing humanity. Of God seeking to restore a fallen creation to himself. Where he makes promises all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Begins to make promises which are the foundation of the gospel. He promises Eve in in chapter 3. He says says to the serpent that there will come a, a seed of Eve, a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, who will crush the head of evil once and for all. Nine chapters later, he speaks to a man named Abram and promises him that he will have many descendants. And through those descendants, specifically one of them, he will bless the entire world. In the next book, Exodus, he creates a unique people and and redeems them from Egypt and promises that they will be a, a people who will be a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, and that they will carry God's name and show it to the rest of the world as a light to the nations. But because they're fallen, just like you and me, they fail. So God has to promise that a servant will one day come and will suffer and redeem his people, not from physical slavery, but from their sin. And and he goes on to promise through his prophets that he will not just give his people a law, but that he will put his own spirit within them and give them new hearts so that they can obey him and follow him. This is the movement of God's story known as redemption, but not even redemption is the end of the story because God promises, even in the Old Testament, that he will one day make everything right, that he will restore everything to the way it was intended to be. And we call this final movement of God's story restoration. And so the gospel is the story of the whole Bible, from beginning to end, that tells the story of God keeping his promises. So it shouldn't surprise us then when Paul, in verses 3 and 4, draws a straight line from these Old Testament promises in the Scriptures, a straight line to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Gospel is the message, he says in verse 3, concerning his son, concerning God's son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And and Paul bookends this short description of of Jesus with, with two important realities, which are then kind of juxtaposed and flipped on the other side, in the middle of these verses. So Jesus is, first of all, God's Son, the Son of God. And this this definition clarifies for us his relationship, Jesus' relationship, with divinity. But second, at the end of the verse, we see that Jesus is our Lord, and this clarifies his relationship 
with humanity, which is where he, he then goes. And when, with regards to his humanity, Paul says this, Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean that he's descended from David according to the flesh? Well, first of all, according to the flesh simply means according to his human nature. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, took on human nature. He took on flesh and bones. He had a brain. He had ten toes and ten fingers. I think he was a carpenter, so he may have cut some off at some point. He took on a human nature. He became a real man. He had real ancestors, great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers, aunts and uncles. He had a family. He lived in a house. He ate food. He spoke a language. He learned a trade. He was absolutely and fully human. In fact, there's no other way for Jesus to act on our behalf as our high priest and as our sacrifice, as our substitute, if he wasn't fully human. But Jesus wasn't just any human. He wasn't just anyone's descendant. He had royal blood. Okay. He was descended from David, it tells us. The greatest king of Israel. Another man who in the Old Testament God revealed himself to and made a promise to in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises David that he will build for him a dynasty. He will build for him a kingdom, a house. He will give him a descendant who will reign on his throne forever. The descendant would come to be known as the Messiah, the the anointed one, the king, the Christ. So Jesus is human, and Jesus is royal, and Jesus is an eternal king, which, which leads really to what Paul next says about Jesus, that Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? What it doesn't mean, what Paul is not saying here, is that suddenly, at some moment in time, this man Jesus became God's son. There wasn't a moment in time where he got adopted into God's family, like at the resurrection. Well, that's clear because we know earlier in the Gospels, when Jesus was baptized, God said, this is my beloved son. But Jesus wasn't, didn't become the son at that time either. Jesus has always been the son of God. What happened at the resurrection is that Jesus conquered death and was shown to be in power and beyond a shadow of a doubt exactly who he already was. As the only begotten son, as, as the unique and eternal God, he is not created Even though he was born a baby, there was never a time when Jesus wasn't. He's always been. He's eternal, and therefore he is divine. He is the eternal Son of God. But when he became a human, Jesus' divine status was veiled. And the resurrection, what the resurrection did was it unveiled him. It revealed to us who he really is. And this is why the resurrection, I think, was so important to Paul's message, to his gospel message, because it was proof positive that in Jesus, God is keeping his promises. He is the Son of God. And even though he died, his death was not final. 
And it was not without purpose or consequence. Rather, his death is able now to pay for and forgive sins once and for all. And his resurrection has conquered death and crushed the head of the devil. So according to Paul, the gospel story tells, and it climaxes here, when it tells of God's eternal son who became human and through his death and resurrection conquered sin and death. And the devil. So we've heard about God's part in this gospel, which will continue, but now in verse 4, Paul begins to summarize and explain what the gospel has now to do with you and with me. So he says at the end of verse 4 it's about Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So, so as someone who received grace and apostleship, Paul, Paul's task was to evangelize. In other words, Paul's task was to share and preach and proclaim the gospel, to spread the good news about this Jesus, God's son, the kingly descendant of, of David, who through his death and resurrection has fulfilled all of God's promises for us. But Paul didn't go around preaching this gospel just so that people could get informed, he wasn't just sharing bare facts so that people could have a, have a deeper understanding of who this man was. He preached to elicit a response. Namely, he says in this verse, the obedience of faith. Now, we don't often talk about or think about faith as being obedience, do we? Obedience by, faith, by definition is something that we owe to someone. Right? If you're under authority, you owe whoever's over you, you owe them your obedience. So to be obedient is to owe someone something, and we don't think of faith in that way that we owe it. I, th- I think oftentimes, actually, as good old Americans, maybe most of the time, we think of our faith as actually doing a favor for God. Man, isn't God lucky that I believe in him? I mean, nobody believes in that guy anymore, but I'm sticking with him. I don't want him to be lonely. And we, we almost look at, hey, God, you're lucky to have me on your team. But, but Paul, who was always talking, God, Paul was always talking about God's free grace. He's the apostle of, of God's grace. And he says it right here, the obedience of faith. He is saying that faith is a sort of obedience. That is, God has required something of us in the message of the gospel. And the only obedient response to this message of good news is faith. Faith is the appropriate obedient response that realizes that in the gospel, God is graciously reaching down to sinners. That he is moving towards rebellious, idolatrous traitors and dead people and rescuing them. And I don't think that the appropriate response of a desperate and drowning person is to make demands of the one that's rescuing them. No. You follow directions. If someone throws you a life preserver, you do what they tell you to do and grab the life preserver. You obey. You do everything in your power, which isn't much, 
Just put my arm over the life preserver. I'm just grabbing on for dear life. You do everything in your power to grab the life preserver and get rescued. See, faith is obedience because faith is submission to the one who's rescuing us. It's grabbing on to him for dear life. It's not intellectual assent. It's not doing God a favor. It's not simply parroting a prayer back to God. Paul calls Jesus our Lord, which means that the essence of faith is submission to a king. That's what it means for Jesus to be a Lord, that he's over us, that he has authority, that we submit to him. And the first ways that we submit to him is just grabbing on for dear life. As he offers to rescue us. To obey in faith is to, is to submit to Jesus our king and place ourselves under his authority. So the gospel demands obedient, submissive faith to Jesus as our king. Now, to wrap up our meditation on these verses, I just have three more quick hits in these few verses. And the first one comes in Romans 1, 5, where it says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. In other words, the gospel isn't primarily about you. The gospel isn't primarily about me. The gospel is and always will be about God, primarily. The gospel is God's chosen message by which he actually brings glory and honor and praise to himself as the rescuer. As the Savior, as the Lord, I'm the one who's rescuing everybody. He's the one who deserves all the glory, who deserves all the honor, who deserves all the praise. In fact, if God put anyone else's glory above his own glory, he wouldn't be God. He would be an idolater. So God, let me ask you this question. If God's end is his own glory... If God's end, if God's main purpose is the fame of his own name... What should our greatest goal be? The gospel brings God glory. Continuing on in verse 5 there. For the sake of his name among all the nations. The gospel here, Paul says, is for everyone. Jesus famously said, for God so loved the what? The world. God so loved the world. The gospel isn't limited to a particular ethnic group or language family or superior race. Israel was never supposed to keep God to herself, and neither are we. The gospel is meant to spread and encompass and draw in people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, which includes you and me. Praise God. The gospel welcomes all people groups into God's family. And then finally, for the sake of his name among all the nations, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And I love this phrase. This little phrase is beauty and encouragement wrapped up in four Greek words, maybe three, depending on how you read it. And it literally reads, you called Jesus Christ's, comma, S, possessive. You are called Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus. This, and that phrase to me, when I read it, 
It feels to me like a warm and welcoming hug, or maybe a soft and melty chocolate chip cookie. Whatever you want to go with here. A warm, welcoming hug from a loving father. And it answers the question, not just who the gospel says that we are, but whose the gospel says we are. It, it, it answers the question of who we belong to. We are, by faith, Jesus Christ's people. We are his, and that is the beauty of the gospel. It is God giving us a place, giving us an identity, giving us belonging, giving us inclusion, welcoming us in, drawing us through Christ into the inner circle, into his presence and his family. It is God making orphans into children and rebels into friends. The gospel is the work of Christ that makes us Christ's. So let me try to summarize all that I've said here. Remember, I did say earlier, the gospel is so simple that even I can understand it. Let me try to summarize it here. You can write this down or not. I'll try to leave it up there long enough for you to get it. The gospel is God's good news. The story of the whole Bible that tells of God keeping his promises. The story reaches its climax in God's eternal son, Jesus Christ, who became human and through his death and resurrection conquered sin, death, and the devil. This gospel demands a response of obedient, submissive faith to Jesus as king. And by this faith, people from every people group are made Christ's and welcomed into God's family and God gets all the glory. Is that good enough? Amen. Amen. This is good news, right? And this is why. I think why else would Paul exclaim, as he understands this, if we understand it, if our eyes are opened and our minds are open to this, Paul exclaims in verse 16, and I think he would long for us to, to exclaim along with him, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why should we be ashamed when we have so great a message of salvation? We have the greatest story in the world. We have the greatest message to carry. We have a gospel that has the power to change our lives and the lives of everyone we know. And it's that message, that gospel, that it is at the center of who we are and why we exist, why we've been here for 150 years. This is the gospel we celebrate, the gospel we recognize, the gospel we remember, and and for which we pour out our gratitude as we come to the table this morning, as we take of the bread and the juice and we remember Christ's broken body, his blood spilt out as he became a human and gave his life on the cross for us that we might be welcomed in through faith to the family of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you're welcome and invited to come to the table and receive a reminder of God's grace to you. Come in gratitude, come in faith, come in joy. Come not ashamed of the gospel. And if you're not a follower of Christ today and God is working on your heart, I would encourage you to talk to somebody about this gospel. Try to make it as clear as possible 
today. And if, if God's moving you, respond. Today is the day of salvation. Respond. Come talk to me, one of the other elders, anybody that looks friendly, or someone you came with today. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful. We're thankful for your grace upon us that from before the beginning of the world, you had planned to give your son to become a descendant of David and to be resurrected by the spirit of holiness and to be proved as the, not just the son of God, your eternal son, but also as our savior and our Lord, fully God, fully man. Jesus, we praise you today for being at the center of our story, being the center of God's story. And we pray that you would find in our hearts this morning an obedient and submissive and joyful, glad, grateful faith. It comes knowing that we have little to offer other than putting our arms through the life preserver and being saved. We're so glad that you've rescued us, that you've saved us, that you've offered us this salvation. We don't want to take it lightly. We want to walk from this place leaving not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus, bring glory to yourself this morning in your name. Amen.